<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 233 with my guest, Joanne Butaro. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. You can... Uh, browse the forums, you can read blogs and guest blogs, you can uh, fill out surveys that uh, we potentially will read on the podcast. Uh, either way, it helps us uh, get to know you better. Um, and you can support the show financially uh, on the website as well. Uh, I was going to uh, try to describe how I've been feeling uh, lately, but instead I'm going to read this uh, struggle in a sentence survey that um, I want to start off with. This is uh, filled out by, because this is exactly how I've been feeling. And uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Peaches IDK. Um, about her depression, she writes, I honestly can't remember what it feels like to wake up feeling energetic, optimistic, and ready to, quote, take on the day. I marvel at people who go skiing for the weekend or even people who complete a full week at their job. Every day is work for me. I work hard to be productive. I work hard to seek mental health and clarity, but it's work. I wish I could just have that feeling back, even for five minutes, so I could remember and maybe believe it was actually possible again. And then a snapshot from her life. I'm so miserably and catatonically depressed as I lay languidly on my couch for hours. My eyes grow heavy with sleep and I yearn to feel the sweet relief of unconsciousness. It's only moments away, but without fail, a vicious cycle ensues. And before I can escape into blissful nothingness, a jolt runs through my entire body. And it's as if I've been shocked by an electric fence or struck by lightning. My eyes are instantly wide open and I'm filled with anxiety drenched guilt. 
The feeling of unease is overwhelming, but my body and mind are so tired, and it only takes another 20 minutes before I gradually work myself back down into lethargy. But this is a cycle, remember? So even though depression fills my veins with heavy lead, weighing me down to the couch, the anxiety monster doesn't give a fuck. The anxiety monster is disgusted at how I'm wasting my life. The anxiety monster tells me it's a beautiful day. I should get up. I should try and go for a walk. I should be stronger. But I lay there as the hours pass, letting the depression win, while the anxiety monster whispers in my ear, You're weak. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for that. I, I, today, I... I went to bed last night about 3.30, got up at 1 o'clock, went and did some work for about three hours, and just anxiety started, just this anxiety, you know? It seems like ever since I went off of Abilify, um, I've had this anxiety that's that that hasn't really completely gone away. The only time it seems to have really completely go away is right after I exercise. But um I, all I wanted to do was just come back to my bed to just not have to deal with my head or the world. And so I came back and it, and the same thing has been happening the last couple of months is I come back to bed to lay down to escape but because this anxiety is there. I can't sleep. I used to be able to sleep no problem. Anytime I wanted to to lay down, I'd be able to take an afternoon nap. But um, when I read that survey, um, it was comforting to know that um, that I'm not alone in, in those thoughts that I have in my head because I, I, you know, I can preach all I want on this podcast, but I have the hardest time uh, taking my, my own advice and I beat myself up, you know, I beat myself up. So that's how, that's how I'm doing. I would say if, if there's on, in terms of intensity was a 10 out of a 10, I'd say mine's maybe a seven out of a 10, but there's your update. Enjoy. This is uh, from uh, also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Pinkie Pie Parka. And about her depression, she writes, Like every time I decide to enjoy my life, someone knocks on my door, explains there is no point to anything because everything will suck anyways, so he takes my energy and leaves. About her bulimia, like maybe if I fill my body to the point I want to vomit, some of the tension will leave and I won't feel so empty. At least I control something. About her love addiction, maybe if I buy my boyfriend another t-shirt or find a necklace he likes, he'll find me too cute to leave and our relationship will be stable. I'm constantly trying to buy his love with things because I never stop thinking about the next time I see him about her OCD. If I find all the split ends in my hair or cut off every tag on every t-shirt I have, I will finally be in control of my life. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, and this is, this, this one is uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Dacian, D-A-C-I-A-N. Um, he writes about his depression, going through the motions while inside every action rings hollow, false, and wrong. 
about his anxiety. Heat explodes at the base of my neck and my pulse slams on the gas, spiraling and crashing through my body like my thoughts, going a thousand miles an hour, and I go silent as the noise inside drowns out my own voice. But his bulimia, shove my fingers inside and get rid of all the negativity and pain. Flush once for the bulk, twice for the remainder. Let's be civilized about our madness here. Uh... Uh, compulsive behavior. He writes, anxiety hits in the middle of the night and I bolt from the apartment and go for runs, desperately scared until I end up somewhere halfway across town and the feeling of being trapped subsides. This happens at least twice a week and I have to run. I just have to. I have no choice. Thank you for that. Uh, And then uh, finally, this one is from a woman who calls herself can't think of anything clever. And uh, about her her hypersensitivity, she writes, I'm sitting here at work and I'm painfully aware of what my hair feels like at the top of my head. I had to take my earrings off because I could feel them hanging from my ears. When I sit down, I can feel my fat roll pressing against the rest of my body. I can hear someone chewing across the room and it drives me so crazy that I start to feel homicidal. I can't block it out. I smell things like a pregnant woman. Many smells make me nauseous and I often puke. There is no filter between me and the world and everything feels personal. About her anger issues, she writes, I almost hurt my child because she didn't want to wear the pair of socks I picked out when we were running late. I put my hands around her neck and realized that I had totally lost it. My one consolation was that I didn't actually squeeze. The minute I saw where my hands were, I pulled away and apologized profusely. But isn't that abuse? I, I don't know what I, I would call it, but the fact that you were aware of it and you apologized is huge. And so focus on that. And you sound like you're, you're um, uh, a person who is uh, becoming increasingly more conscious of what you're doing. And that's huge. So give yourself some credit for that. Uh, about her compulsive behaviors, she writes, To escape from my mind, I stay up for hours. I, I stay up hours later than I should with a stick pin, meticulously picking all the dead skin out of the little holes in my watch band until my wrist hurts, all the while telling myself, I need to stop and go to bed. And uh, about her ADHD, she writes, I have the brain of a Ferrari race car engine and the brakes of a bicycle. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that. And it was amazing i'm here with joanne uh butaro butaro either way is fine oh okay um you were referred to me by your boyfriend uh steve cooper who 
whose podcast I had done, and he said, I think you might want to interview my girlfriend because she's got an interesting story. Um, where would be a good place to start with with your story? Well, when I tell my story, I'm... I consider myself lucky as um, a date rape survivor uh, that I have not just a beginning but a middle and an end so um, I usually you know we can start at the beginning but you know there's other places if you're interested in starting at the end and going back um, I don't know what do you think because <laughs> I haven't had a story like yours before while I have ex- had guests who have experienced it I think yours is different in that it was high profile yes. um, I post I, I suppose let's let's uh, start by um, saying that you were you were date raped by the match.com rapist yes um, what let's start from the beginning of that of that experience okay um, yes I was um, I guess the best way he was a predator because there were uh, he was a serial date rapist. There were many, many, many women um, that would come out later once the investigation really um, got rolling. But yeah, it was 10 years ago, 2004. And what is his name? Uh, Jeffrey Marsalis. And uh, I watched the episode of, um, remind me of the name of the the TV show. Uh, Very Bad Men. Very Bad Men. And um, very physically attractive guy, Mm -hmm. extremely charming. Yes. Classic predator. Yes. Classic predator. Yes. Um, And convinced people that he was a doctor. Correct. Um, but I want you to tell your story. I don't. I don't okay. want to. I may interject no, here okay. or there where I feel like an important detail is, right. is being missed. But um, uh, I guess I preface that. Uh, I don't know why I preface that. I, I, I want to paint a picture. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's yeah. not a preface. Go yes. ahead. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, at the time, online dating was pretty new. Um, so, you know, the, there was just only a few websites match was, it probably still is. It was the biggest one at the time. Um, and I had been online dating on and off for about a year. So, um, now, now to be fair, this was the late seventies and you would describe yourself with a C prompt, correct? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, I can't remember if he emailed me or I emailed him, but I, you know, I saw his profile and he, his tag was Dr. Jeff. So he was already starting the story before you even meet him. Sorry. Um, and you know, so I reviewed the profile and, you know, emailed him back. He did have a lot of pictures, which, uh, back then when you were online dating, you kind of thought that was a little odd. You would see three or four. You would want to see a few, but he had about 10 or 12. <laughs> and if I remember seeing uh, some of them correctly, one, was it him like leaning on a Mercedes or something? Or am I thinking of somebody else's story? 
He had many. I don't remember a car one, but he did have uh, him in his medical garb and an oh, astronaut uniform. Oh, which that we'll was get the astronaut uniform. Yeah, we'll get oh, to that one. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. And I'm sorry <laughs> if I have moments of gleefulness. It's, it's, it's about the... Uh, awfulsomeness of that's a word we use on the podcast to describe something about somebody that is um ridiculous yes even though it's buried in the context of something awful that happened and um you understand that i'm not making light of what he did it's just the the hokiness now even when i speak about it and um you know i we can talk about this but um i am friends with one of the other victims we um met later on not in court but at another situation um and yeah we we joke about the ridiculousness of jeffrey marsalis who he really is nobody um but the you know the things that that he did to uh to meet women so I take I would never have, take offense to that because okay. I could do it myself. Good. And have you guys? Uh, I would imagine you've shared laughs. Uh, what did that feel like when you when you laughed with with her? Um, she is, and the other victims that I'd met during not during, but at the end of the trials and things like that, had communication with. Um, they're the only other people, women on the planet, who know what it feels like to be me or them or by having been um, lied to and not just lied to, but his whole persona was a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you guys were drugged. So you, yes. you didn't know what happened. You just knew uh, something didn't, didn't feel right. Exactly. Correct. Yes. I'm actually the only one of his victims who did not wake up. Um, I was drugged from the moment I uh, took a drink, took the sip of the drink he gave me, until the next morning. It's about eight hours. Unfortunately, a lot of the other women woke up because he was mixing the drug himself. Uh, he wasn't buying this off the street. Um, again, this goes to his ego. He thought he was the only one qualified to make the drug that he was going to drug us with. Um, so I guess because of my small stature um, and probably because I hadn't eaten a lot that day, um, which a lot of girls can relate to. If you're going on a date, you're not mm. eating a lot. You want to look skinny in your clothes. And um, so I hadn't eaten a lot. Um, so that's probably why I was completely incapacitated for so many hours but unfortunately a lot of the other women woke up it was hazy but they know something was happening to them that they were not agreeing to so uh, in fact the 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 one that kind of broke the case open was um a woman who he befriended who was a lesbian Yes. And when she woke up and knew that she'd had sex, she definitely knew that it, it wasn't consensual, no matter how um, uh, under the influence. Because I would imagine a lot yes. of them thought that they were drunk. Do you remember yes. feeling woozy and thinking something is wrong, or did you just immediately go out? Not at all. I wasn't even. I knew I had to drive home, so I wasn't even drunk. I was watching what I was drinking that night. Um, but yeah, I didn't even get woozy. I just. It was one moment, and then it was the next morning, and I was awake and violently ill. So, um, you know, that's when I, and I didn't have my clothes on, and I was in his bed, so I knew 
everything was wrong. <laughs> and did you think that um, you had just had a lot to drink? Did you believe that you had had a lot to drink or did you think some, something was wrong? I rationalized it and I figured, well, I just had too much to drink because it, the, nothing else made sense. It didn't make sense that I would pass out and not remember, you know, even I mean, we had been kissing on his couch before I took the drink and had a sip of it. But, you know, there was no plans of me staying. Like I said, if I, you know, I was watching what I was drinking alcohol wise because I wanted to drive home. And and you up to that point were charmed by him and yeah. kind of liked him and, and thought to yourself, this guy is somebody that I might want to see again. I mean, right. clearly you were kissing him, so right. there was, um, his ruse was working. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes to the first conversation we had on the phone. We were, talked for about an hour and a half. Then we made plans um, to meet a couple of days later. It was a Friday night. And yeah, we started out at one bar. This was in Philadelphia. And uh, it was even though it was late March, it was real warm. And for anyone who's from the East Coast, when it's, you know, like March and warm, everyone's out and everyone's in a good mood. It's the best. And it you is smell, the best. You smell the weather again. Yeah. You smell. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I was just thinking of that yesterday as I was um, outside. I was like, man, I miss the smell of the Midwest, especially like in the summer when the crickets are chirping yeah. and there's there's so many intense memories associated with with smell. Absolutely. But, but, but yeah, ahead. you don't get that here because it's the same every day. It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. And it's so dry. There's really no there's no smell. <laughs> there's no smell. No. Um, but yeah, so it was a warm night. So we started out at one bar and then, uh, you know, real easy conversation. Um, then we walked down to another place. He lived in Center City. Um, and, you know, if you're from a big city, you know that uh, high-rise apartment buildings have rooftop, you know, either gardens or they have chairs up there and people go up. So he invited me up there to look at the view of the city. And I said, yes. Again, I was in control of myself. Um, I was 37 at the time. So an experienced dater, I could say, um, knew that I could trust my instincts. Um Although I can, I go back, of course, later, and the things that were, that I was thinking in my head that was wrong, um, were wrong. So, you know. Can you give me some examples of that? Uh, yes. We were chatting, and, well, first, you know, all the pictures, that was weird on the profile, but we were chatting, and he was showing me, as he, you know, he had described what he did for a living, and he was showing me his IDs, his medical ID from the hospital in Philly his astronaut ID to get into NASA because he was being, you know, groomed for that program. So, um, and I thought, well, that's a little odd, but, you know, it's like only he's a trying first so, date. Like he's trying so hard. Maybe exactly. he's just dorky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, first dates are so awkward. <laughs> it sounds like he, you know, a, a, a part of clearly what got him off, you know, certainly was the sexual assault but it sounds like it, it really began with the fooling like mm -hmm. that was his real drug yes was be basking in the um pulling some something over on, on somebody else yeah. yeah and then to for him 
as many people do with a, a sickness that, that that they have is then you want to carry it to the ultimate place which would be orgasming while in that state of enjoying that that control or that right yeah yeah and he um not only that but um he had I guess it makes sense because he drugged all of us. Um, He had a fetish with having sex with someone who was, you know, lifeless. So um, there was there was talk later on, I guess, during the investigation, you know, talk of other, you know, to other victims, um, you know, and and that was quite obvious. Uh, But yeah, his the whole and he practiced the same story, you know, we during the trial, the victims got up and told almost the same exact stories. They had never met each other. The prosecution made sure that we didn't even sit near each other outside the courtroom. Um, so, yeah, when you use the same story, of course, you know, we know this from watching things on TV. Um, they believe it. And then uh, how would you not believe it? So that's... You know, that's what that was. And and predators, I think, spend so much time in fantasy about the thing that they're going to do that when they find a um, modus operandi that works, that brings them that feeling of power, why would you want to deviate yes. from something that you know is going to give you that drug? It's, you know, it's like, you know, when a drug addict finds heroin... You know, why would they say, well, I think I'm just going to smoke pot tonight? No, you're exactly. going to go to the to the heroin. I can't say speak for everyone, but I can say that I'm sure most of us have really weird thoughts. And that's OK, because the your brain's working, you know, but it's the sick ones that that act on it and hurt others. So, And I think there's a difference, too, between having... I think there's three kinds of sick thoughts. I think there's the sick th- thought that's completely uninvited to your brain that doesn't uh, arise, arouse you or give you a sense of, uh, of power or excitement. Then there's the sick thoughts that do give you a little bit of a hit, mm-hmm. but you don't act on it because right. there's a clear line you won't cross. Right. And then there are the people where it does... Yeah invigorate them and right. they're apparently powerless or have no moral conscience or, or, or whatever yeah um yeah i mean it's during the trial and after you know speaking with the other woman women he was at one point he was meeting so many women um there was one girl that he raped five days after me there was a girl that was a week before me. Um, I mean, he was he was escalating. Um, so, which I understand is common with with serial predators, right? Yeah, they will end. You know, you mentioned the victim um, who was a lesbian, and she's our, all of our hero because she was the one that immediately, you know, she goes. She call, tells her sister what happened. They go to the police, the hospital. They had, you know. So they had DNA. Yeah, they had DNA, statement. And then they had a witness. That cab driver is another hero. Um, so, you know, it was it, all the all the right things after all the bad things he did, you know, fell into place, which led him to, you know, where he is today. Which I think is bound to happen when you're, when you're uh, a predator and it's your heroine and you keep 
to keep that high, just like a drug addict, mm-hmm. they have to keep pushing the limits of yes. what they're getting away with because part of their reward in their brain is getting away with it in that sense of grandiosity, I would imagine. Right. He When he went to Idaho and raped... Uh, the victim there, he was, he had jumped bail in Philadelphia. So he clearly was escalating. Um, he did have weapons. Um, they, you know, things could have only gone, gotten worse from there if he wasn't caught. So, you know, we have to be thankful for that. Yeah, I would imagine, uh, that in his mind, he was thinking, I'm eventually going to be caught and I'm going to go away probably for the rest of my life. So I may wind up having to kill victims or to kill myself. Right. There's, well, and all the victims that he drugged, uh, we could have easily died from a drug overdose. So that's another miracle that, that didn't happen because he wasn't qualified to make drugs. And who knows? Maybe one did, right. and he disposed and of the body. It. Yeah, yeah. You just never know. Although they got access to his Match. dot com records, right? So they knew who he had interacted with, and they contacted all of those women. And that's how some yes. of them found out. That, that's that's that how, how they, you find out. That's how they found me. Was the once he was arrested in Idaho, um, there was a search warrant of his apartment, which found the drugs and his computer. So once they went in his computer, um, they found all these match.com profiles that he saved of all the women um and like some trophies. he didn't like trophies of a serial killer yeah. and that was his undoing because um you know they had an invest now they had a bigger investigation there he was already um out on bail for a trial coming up of three women that accused him um unfortunately he was acquitted on all of those charges but because they had started so vigilantly the investigation where I received the phone call. Um, I It was in December, Christ, before Christmas in 2005. I gave my statement, uh, press charges, and then the trial was a month later. He was acquitted, but they went in and rearrested him right in the courtroom. So he had no idea this was all coming because he didn't know how vigilant the Philadelphia police and the district attorney mm-hmm. were working at that time. So because of my statement and a few other women, um, that he never saw the light of day from then on. Take me through the arc of your emotional life and how you got to a place where you are today. Okay. It's a long... <laughs> I can summarize, but it's a it's long okay. time coming. Um, oh, to get to the place where you are. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the to to get to a a, a healed place um, uh, was a few years, but then you you're at that point where um, you know you've you've had counseling and your counselor you know, knows that you can move on and they have to set you free. You you know what I mean? A, a good counselor, when they see that you're getting better, doesn't keep you in counseling because it's time to, you, you've got to go out on your own. And that's, that's why she was so brilliant. She knew that, um, it was, it was time. And, but the few years after that, there was healing I had to figure out on my own. Um, so yeah, it's it it was 
I guess once the um, once I had given my statement in 2005, and then the final once I had been um, re released by my counselor was 2009. So it was about three and a half years. Let's not let's not jump that far forward. Yeah, fine. I want to I want to because part of me uh, really wants to bring some comfort to. I read so many surveys and I get so many emails from from people, men and uh, women and men, who were date raped. Yes, and um, and many of whom were drugged. And I want to bring them some type of comfort to know that they're not alone in the battle Absolutely. that goes on in their brain yeah. when they wake up that right. following morning. Mm-hmm. Can you take us? through yeah. that battle, voice that battle in your brain and the things that are bouncing around in your brain and the emotions that you're feeling. Okay. Um, so I woke up in his bed without my clothes on, um, knowing something was wrong, and I was violently ill. My, my head hurt like it had never hurt before. My stomach hurt. Just my whole body just hurt. And you were not a blackout drinker. I was not, although I had gone to college. So, you know, you you have those nights. I had experienced really being really drunk. And that was not that. But never drinking to the point that you didn't remember what happened the night before. Right. There's, you know, you always remembering something. And this was just, it just was gone. Um, And just, just to explain to people who have, you know, been through this, the... When you're given a date rape drug, your brain stops recording. So that's why you you won't remember. Don't try to remember. You can't remember. The brain literally stops recording when when this drug is unleashed on it. Yes. So that's, and the, yeah. And the other thing I want to interject is I've also read a lot of surveys from uh, women who uh, were heavy drinkers and they blame themselves. It doesn't matter how much you had to drink. If if you didn't want to happen, what happened? You have zero percent blame for 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 what happened. Yes. Somebody being drunk or passed out is. And I know this sounds really obvious to a lot of people, and, but you have to understand when you are the person who was victimized. Um, and I'm talking to the listeners, not to you. Um, it is so much easier for you to give compassion to others than to yourself. We're con- our brain has this sick way of constantly looking for ways that we were wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and it sounds like in many ways you almost did that with yourself yes. because it was too scary probably yes. to think of what might have happened. Absolutely. Um, yep. but, I, but I want I, I, those uh, people who had too much to drink to say, include yourself in yeah. this in this discussion you are no different than the person who who was drugged right yes um and that's that's something you know we could talk a little about a little more about later but it's called uh it's one of the things as part of rape culture is um that there was that the victim did anything wrong it doesn't matter uh, the victim never did anything wrong because like you said uh you could be so drunk to the point of where you can't you can't move but you're you know, you're still talking or whatever it doesn't matter you can't consent at that point so um it's it doesn't matter whether you drank too much or not enough and the other thing that i'd like to to um add is there are many people who 
remained silent while um, somebody was having sex with them and they couldn't find the words mm-hmm. to say, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And they were kind of frozen. Yeah. And while you may say that yeah there's a gray area of the person who is having sex with them because that person really couldn't tell that that person didn't didn't want it right what they share with all of what you and the people that had too much to drink what they share in common is that they didn't want it to happen and there you need to occasionally separate somebody else's culpability from the feelings that you were left with right yeah. And that is important to heal because yes. healing has nothing to do with legality. Right. Healing has everything to do with right. having compassion for yourself and saying, how can I regain, you know, what yes. what was lost, no matter whether it was taken or I just shut down. Right. Yes. And then, you know, I've, I've heard those stories, too, where um, they they want to say no they in their mind they're like i don't want this to happen and they just they, for whatever reason like you they're said they're afraid the person's going to leave can't. them yeah they don't you know maybe they're having a flashback to having been molested as right. a child whatever mm-hmm. and i want to say to those people include yourself in in this talking about healing as Absolutely. a as as a um somebody who experienced something traumatic right yes okay um, so yeah, I so, swear that's the last time I'm going to interject something, but <laughs> no, it's fine. It kills me to see uh, people that can't give themselves compassion to begin healing because it's it's the first step, right? Yeah, I know, I know because that's where that's where I started, you know, and now I'm here. But that that was where I started, um, and uh, so I woke up sick. And knowing everything was wrong. Um, and what another thing that he did was that he was nice to the women after. So, um, you know, so now your brain's really screwed up. You, you don't know why you can't remember anything. Um, you know, you didn't consent to anything and you didn't even have a plan to sleep with this guy. Um, but then you wake up and then he's nice to you. So you're like, okay, well, clearly I drank too much. I, it was all, you know, you take it on yourself because he's being nice because why would a rapist be nice to me now? It just, it was all these things that don't make sense. Because that's what that, I would imagine for certain type of rapists. Yeah. That's. He's still getting high. Absolutely. He's still, he's still fooling he's you. He's still playing the game. He's yeah. still playing the game. Yes. Um, so, and I'm a really logical person. That's it's that's just who I am. And it, you know, I couldn't make sense of it. Even if you're not logical, you're not making sense of it. But you know, to the thousandth degree, I couldn't put it all together. Um, so. As I said, he was being nice, and then he, you know, I guess his way to get me out of his house was that, you know, he told me he had, um, you know, a shift that day at the hospital, and um, And so... And then he had to run over to the launch pad (laughs) and make sure that he had programmed all the computers correctly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So... He even, you know what, he, in his apartment, as part of the ruse, he had a pile of scrubs in the corner of his, of his Why bedroom. Why would he? Why would he? Right. To, like, build up the story. Um, I didn't see it, but other women had seen, um, 
you know, things on him, like the astronaut jacket and, you know, th- they, he, they'd seen things in his part. I think I did see the jacket. When you though. were at dinner, did he offer to cut your steak with his scalpel? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he did not. Um, so, yeah, so I... You know, and then I had to find my clothes. They weren't in the bedroom. They were in the living room, which was the last place I remembered anything. Um, I don't remember, obviously, taking them off because I didn't. Um, so, you know, I had to find my clothes. And um, and then I had parked in a parking garage. Again, it's the city. Um, but there was a little corner, you know, bodega uh attached to his building and I was so sick I needed water I needed a bagel you know you you know you think I thought I was hungover so I wanted all the things that you want when you're sick and hungover so we stopped in there I was just thinking too that why would he leave your clothes on the couch and it occurred to me he probably got off on the humiliation of watching you have to walk naked to go find your clothes it's like this guy used every yeah you know, like like somebody eating a dish where they get every single crumb. Right. Yeah. He from the from the beginning to the end, he you know milked it, whatever yeah. he had to do to get you know enjoyment out of it. So he walked me to my car, and um, I didn't because I had no. I remember this. I had no plans of being out uh, in the daytime. Coming home, I didn't even have my sunglasses. So you can imagine just being like your head hurts and your stomach hurts. And I wanted to get home so fast and get to bed. And it was the sunniest day on the planet. And my visor wasn't working enough. And I just got home as fast as I could. And I went to bed. And um, I, at the time, I had a dog, and she was the sweetest thing. And she, you know, animals know when you're sick. And she just laid with me. And I was, so that was Saturday morning. I was sick until sometime Sunday. I didn't leave bed. I didn't get anything. I didn't eat anything. I I barely made it to the patio door to let her out. Um, that's how sick I was. And what thoughts were going through your head and what emotions, if any, were you experiencing? I just, I was just confused. It was just a lot of confusion. I, I couldn't make any sense of it and I just wanted to, I just wanted to feel better. Did the thought ever occur to you that I had been drugged and date raped? Not at all. Not at all. I just, it wasn't even a blip on my radar. I don't, I don't know why. Um, you know, I guess back then people didn't talk about it as much. How how many years ago was this? 10. Okay. Um, it, date rape was talked about, but not in the sense of being drugged. It was more of, uh, being on a date with uh, your boyfriend and being raped. They, I remember that being talked about back then, but to be drugged and, and raped wasn't really, you know, in the news the way it was now, the way mm-hmm. it is now. Um, so yeah, it wasn't even, it didn't even occur to me. So, um, I decided, you know, it was just, it happened and I was going to move on. So you were more, you were more confused as to your behavior. Yeah. Why would I, why would I have drank that much? Yes. Okay. And, and had sex with them when I had no plans of doing either thing. So, um, so yeah, since I figured, well, I, you know, it was all me. I was just going to forget about it. If I forgot about it, then feel, I could move on. Did you feel shame? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. What did you tell yourself? 
Um, just, just that I wanted to forget about it. <laughs> okay. So that feeling would start to come up, that shame would start to come up, yeah. and you would just dismiss it yeah, and like, say, let's not think about this. Yeah, it's like, I made a mistake, I'm going to move on. Um, you know, and, and I can, like I said, I was 37, and I could proudly say when I make mistakes, you know, I owned them, and I just moved forward. You know, I didn't, I didn't wallow in them. Mm-hmm. I wallowed in other things, but not yeah. that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, basically, um, that was it until a year and a half later when I received a message on my answering machine Mm. from the, um, yes, answering machines. You can laugh now. (laughs) Had you, had you ever experienced any kind of trauma or dealt with any kind of mental illness or tragedy in your life before that? You strike me as an extremely centered kind of, uh, you know, well-rounded uh person it was there was there um because you said you didn't you didn't beat yourself up about that but you beat yourself up about other things i guess that made me think right um are we missing something that's unrelated to this story not it's not it's not related but i i had um gone through mild depression and i don't know i guess i was Right around 30, it was either late 20s or early 30s, I, I can't remember. And I'd gone to counseling at that point, too. It was group counseling, but yeah. But it helped, and again, I I uh, moved on. Okay. So, um, yeah, I guess I... Um, so you're a very proactive person. When when a problem <laughs> presents itself in your life, you're like, let's let's do what it takes to, to help move through this. Yeah, I guess... Um, you know, I I grew up with a single mother and a, a brother, and, you know, she worked. And so when I was in middle school, I was already taking responsibility and cooking dinner because it had to be cooked and cleaning the house because it had to be clean. And um, I worked as soon as I turned 16. I paid for a car. I paid for college. And I'm not saying I didn't have, like, you know, points where, and I still do, you know, I'll, something will upset me or piss me off and I'll cry and I'll scream and and then but th- that's the way I get it out so if I can get it out I can get I can get past that sounds it. totally normal and healthy <laughs> to me seriously seriously that's like that's what we gun for those of us that that struggle with depression and and mental illness and buried rage mm-hmm. that's like what I encourage people to do is let it out yeah. and you know in a way that's um you know, before you dry, run somebody off the road right. or, you know, yeah. tell some woman in front of you in line in the grocery store to fuck off. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When who you really want to yell at is, you know, your yeah. sibling or your <laughs> partner, whoever. Yeah, I stay in the privacy of my own home and I let yeah, it out. That's awesome. You know, like a crazy woman. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I was able to, to do that. You know, I, I just, I moved on and I, I, Went back to match and, you know, tried to date, you know, date again. I went doing that. Um, but yeah, until, until I received the phone call. Um, and it was, so it was late on Friday. I was actually on my cell phone and the answering machine was in another room. So I heard that it picked up, but, and then by the time I got the message, cause I was on the phone for so long, um, I couldn't call back. So here's a Friday night. Uh, the call says, this is so-and-so from the, um, family violence and, um, 
sexual assault unit or something like that of the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Although I lived in New Jersey, it's um, uh, I, I was nine miles from Philadelphia, so it was one of if, you know you live outside the city, you you know you you go into the city a lot and have fun with your friends or whatever. So and so now it's like all weekend I'm thinking, oh my god, who do I know that needs my help? Oh like this my is god. right, like. That's insane. Now, looking back, like, what a thought went through my head. I, like I said, I had put that so, like, buried it so far that I didn't even think I, it was me that it was about. Wow. I know. It's so crazy. But it had, um, all weekend long, it had sort of, uh, bugged me, like, oh, I couldn't wait till Monday morning to make the call because I, I needed to find out what was going on. <laughs> I had a, I had a doctor. <laughs> she, they did a, um, took a, a skin test from something that looked dicey and so they did a a, can- a biopsy mm-hmm. on it and she left a fucking message late Friday afternoon we got the results of your biopsy Paul I want you to call me really call me on Monday yeah. who the fuck <laughs> does that go ahead <laughs> um, so yeah so uh, I go to work Monday morning um and I made the call. I was waiting for the time that I could call. My job at the time, I had to be there at 8 a.m. And it was an hour from home, so I was up really early. And so I'm at my desk, and I make this phone call. And I'm talking to one of the um, e- the ADAs. Um, and she asked me if I knew Jeffrey Marsalis. And I think about it. You know, you have one date with someone. Um, I'm lucky I remember their name, you know. That, you know, they're not that significant if you only have one date. Um, and then I was like, oh, yeah. And she starts to tell me why they're investigating him. And it was like like I was getting hit by a freight train because it all came back. To, and it didn't all just come back. It all came back to me and it all made sense. It was awful. Do you feel it in your stomach? I it was like that thing where it's it's sort of like you know when you you um, slam on the brakes because someone's gonna you're almost yeah. gonna get an accident and then from the top of your head to your toes like the adrenaline goes through your body. Oh my god! And it was like I I couldn't even believe what like I couldn't I started crying immediately when it hit me and she's like she starts apologizing she's i'm so sorry she's like but then she's trying to find out what i know because she's investigating a monster and she needs to know what happened to me um because clearly he knew me because she's looking at my match.com profile out of his computer so i had to uh gather myself and i yeah i told her i said i went on a date and i told her what happened i said you know, I thought I drank too much, and but it didn't make sense. I start to tell her everything. Um, and so, you know, I'm emotional, and she's trying to calm me down. And, but she's also trying to tell me um, that she needs me to, if if I would, would I meet with um, a, detective, a detective from the Special Victims Unit? Because they need my statement and, you know, that they're trying to build a case against him. I'm not the only one. Um, and I said, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, I hang up the phone and I run into the bathroom and then I came back and I called and I made the appointment with the detective. Um, so how this did, was a Monday morning. How did you get through work that day? I 
didn't. I was in the bathroom. I guess my my friend who was in the cubicle across from me, we, we were very close friends. So she came into the bathroom and I was like, I was inconsolable. Um, I told her what happened. One of the few people I actually at, had told what happened for at least another year. Um, but she was there and it was all raw. Um, so I told her what happened cause she didn't even, I wasn't even working there at the time when I had the date with him, it was a year and a half prior. So we didn't even know each other. Um, and I, you know, I had to get myself back together to get to my desk and, you know, try and, um, get back to work <laughs> you know you work in an office I was working for a credit card bank you had the, you know the cameras are everywhere and I had to get back to my desk um, so yeah so then I called and I made the appointment it was going to be for Thursday morning and and then you know that typical corporate thing where you have to put in for your time and you know so I had to do all this stuff just to take the time like I wasn't already trying to deal figure out and deal with what I what I had coming up um, you know I was trying to now like make up a story why I needed the time off so shortly and mm -hmm. you know all this other stuff um and then again logic starts to uh take over and I figure okay now I need to really from here from now until I meet with a detective I need to remember everything because I need to tell them everything because I knew how important it was I don't know why I just knew at that moment that it was going to be really important and then I needed to um, have everything in my story that I could remember to tell them Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I, I'm already, uh, I'm already a thinker as if that wasn't bad enough. Like I'm always inside my head all the time. Um, I don't like quiet because I don't like being in my head all the time. So your mind spins a bit. Uh, yeah, normally. it does. Yes. Normally. And this, this just put it into overdrive. Um, so that was what I did until I, um, until I drove up and walked into, special victims and met with a detective and um he interviewed me for about two hours um and there i learned more of what was going on um and how big it was how big it was going to be uh how many women they already were had talked to how many that they were hoping to talk to how many more did it bring um, you any I don't know if comfort's the right word, but to know that there were others, did it, did it? Well, yeah, in a certain way. It also made me feel good that um, from early on, I knew I had the district attorney's office and the detectives on my side. Um, the detective explained to me that uh, about the, the case that was coming up a month later. So they had been working on him for a really long time. Um, you know, special victims units are smaller than, you know, your regular detectives. Um, so I guess they had about eight or 10 and, you know, they were, they were all working on it. That's how big it was. Mm. Um, so that gave me comfort to know that, um, I had really powerful people on my side, no like matter a community, like you're going yeah. through this with community it people. already yeah and that was from from the get-go i knew i had a community i knew i had the support um you know which probably was why i hadn't told anyone else you know up until like a month before the preliminary hearing yeah. um i can't stress enough how important it is to create some type of community for whatever it is that you're going through because it 
going through something alone and trapped in your head just magnifies it times a thousand. And it, it makes really you think does. that that is the reality of the problem, that that is the and, – and then you, your sickness extrapolates it and says it's going to be like this forever. Yeah. Because you don't have the community saying, I got through this, here's here's what to expect, or, right. he, you know, this helped me. You miss out on all that stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah and that's that's the thing I like to, to stress, um, you know, when I talk is um, that first and foremost, tell someone. It's a, it, you know, like you said, it, the, the legal thing is, you know, that's a whole separate thing. But tell anyone because to be alone is, you know, it does it. Your whole head makes it it you to be alone and to be suffering and dealing with trauma is you can't do it alone. And what would you say to somebody, because this happens a lot, where something happens to them and they go to a parent who's emotionally unavailable and the parent either minimizes it or says you deserved it or you're a liar or whatever. What would you say to that person then that gets that terrible experience? Go to somebody else? Yes. Yes, because... um Yes, you need to find someone that's going to support you. Get rid of the person that's not going to support you. Because there are so many people out there that want to support you. I Anyone who I have told since, um, men, women, I, I mean, they, they are supportive. They get angry, um, you know, that something so awful happened and can happen to someone that they know. Um, so yeah, so so there is someone that is going to support you. What do you say to the because the other thing I see is um people uh and particularly females don't share it with family members because they're afraid that family member is going to get angry. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you say to to those people because um I, I don't know that that I don't know what to to I, say to those people well the first person obviously i told it and not angry at them angry just yes. angry uh, well um that it's okay for somebody yeah, to be angry yes because they and i i've had to like deal with this with my mom you know she want she wanted to tell everyone and i felt like it wasn't her story to tell but then i'm her daughter so you know in, in a way um you know, I'm from her and, you know, she has to deal with it in her own way. Now, my brother, when I was going to, I guess it was the sentencing, um, my mom, it turned out she couldn't come. So I asked my brother and my brother is the sweetest shirt off your back. The guy that everybody loves, um, for the most part, mild mannered. Um, I've only seen him crossed and get angry a few times. He says... I can't, Joanne, because I don't know if I could control myself from attacking him. And I was, I almost fell on the floor. I was like, here, he's the person, the one person in the world who I thought would be able to control himself because he's, he's just that kind of person. He doesn't use anger ever. Um, but if you cross me or his 
wife or kids or my mom forget it. So what was he saying he couldn't do? He couldn't, he be couldn't go to the with courtroom. me to the courtroom yeah. and be in the same room with him, yeah. with Marsalis. Did you feel let down by that or did you kind of, um, what did you feel when he said I that? I was a little bit disappointed, but I also, again, because I was dealing with so many of my own feelings that I can't um, begrudge someone what their feelings are. So if Jim was angry um, and couldn't do it for whatever reason, I had to I had to let him be that because it's my story and it's my experience, but it's worse I feel for family and friends because they have no control. I had control over everything. I had control over um, going to court. I had control. I have control now over telling my story, um, but they it it did didn't happen to them they don't have control they have to just watch and i think that's worse i honestly do mm-hmm. so i i let them feel however they want to feel talk about how it made you feel as a person knowing that this had happened to you before you got the before you got to speak your truth in court um it was i think because i didn't remember it um it was so surreal because I couldn't, and that, and that feeling would come up so many times. Um, did, I, you, did you feel diminished on a certain level? Or um, did you feel numb? I mean, you had to have felt something. I, well, there was the whole, you know, which is a very common, um, being embarrassed. For telling, it's telling you what you should have no, no, felt. No, no, no. I'm hating myself for saying that no, right now. but it's fine. Um, I guess I'm a little confused. Right, because I can't describe it. Um, and until things started to progress, um, until the, until I stood up in court, until I started the counseling, until things started to progress, I didn't like know how to feel. Um, but I knew that I was angry that there wasn't, it wasn't just me, that there were many. Um, so that was, I, when when the detective asked me if I wanted to press charges, I said, hell yeah. And that's he put those words in his official statement. And it was read once or twice after. And it made me laugh. I was like, oh, my God, he put my exact words down. Because that was the moment that I knew um, I was going to do everything I had to do. It was as long as it took me to put him behind bars because I wasn't his only victim. Um, and he was just, he was an awful monster. Did that, when you heard him read that back, that you saying, hell yeah, did that remind you that you had some control and that you, um, uh, uh, I don't know that that you weren't just a victim, even though yeah. you you were victimized. Right, you it didn't define who you were. Yeah, it was like I was going to say f you, and he was at that point he was um, in prison, so I knew right then and there that um, things were sucking for him because he was well he was in jail. Jail and prison are two different things. Yeah. Um, and it was relayed to me that he wasn't having a good time in the <laughs> Philadelphia jail. Um, they don't like rapists. So, and he was, he was this guy who, um, 
you know, had it had this big ego and prided himself. All all of the the victims were similar in that we were uh, educated, um, independent, um, self sufficient. Some of us owned our own homes. You know, we uh, um, so. That was his ego thing, that he would only go after those types of women, which turned out to be his downfall in the end. Mm-hmm. But um, So here's this guy who's had, had a pretty easy life victimizing other people, and now he was uh, in a jail with real, real hardcore criminals. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that made me feel good. <laughs> so what's the next, the next thing that happened uh at least uh, uh, emotionally for you i mean we know that he that he was he was found guilty um but i i'm i'm more concerned with your emotional life and how you right. healed with it than the 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 details of right the- um well so that was um I gave my statement in December. Uh, the preliminary hearing was scheduled for the following october um and i you know, I had spoken on and off with the district attorney. So that year was really, you know, it was more when it would come up, it would come up like, uh, I think it was more that I had to tell people. And I was, I didn't tell my mom until the week, a week before the preliminary hearing. So leading up until that, the only thing I was really feeling was, um, you know, anxious about the hearing because that, you know, I'd never been in court before for that reason and that I was going to have to tell people so those were the things that were making me anxious um were you afraid that you were going to break down or just that you were going to feel vulnerable and exposed talking about all of that I uh yeah I um because I was going to now have to tell um my family and my close my close friend I only told one friend one other friend at the time um like how do you tell people that now it's easier. I can just say, you know, I you can go watch the show. You know what I mean? So, um, and it's not I, your shame, uh, right? It's not your shame. Yeah. Shame has a really weird way of attaching itself yeah. to the people that shouldn't feel shame. Yeah, it's like um, a barnacle. You know, it's, it sucks, it sucks is. on and stays there. It's really awful. So that those were the things that that I was feeling up until the the preliminary hearing. Um, and then the, the day I woke up and it was, I actually, there were so many women and the day went so long that I was rescheduled to two days later. So I woke up, I had taken off of work. It was actually Halloween, one of my favorite holidays. And I missed it cause I was sitting in court all day, but I woke up that morning and I, tr- I always turn on the news and there's his mugshot and a story of the preliminary hearing. And that was that was second to the time that I was speaking with the district attorney on the phone, the way it hit me. I mean, I lost it. I had to sit down. I was like, oh, my God, it's my life is in the press. What you are not prepared for that. Ever was it because there were going to there was going to be attention or the gravity of what had happened to you suddenly was made more real? Both. It okay. was. Oh shit! I was like, oh my god, this is bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. The detective had alluded to the fact that that it might be in the press, but 
I put that aside and I shouldn't have done that. You know, I just didn't, I was trying to deal with the other stuff I had to mm-hmm. deal with that was coming up. And, um, I, so I had a good cry and I just, I did it again. I said, get it together, Joanne. I got dressed and I got myself down to court. <laughs> and that was a whole, that was a whole nother thing. I walk onto the floor. The court room was at the end of the hall. Um, and it was a freaking zoo. It was. And not in a bad and a good way. It was all the people that I had, um, and hadn't met uh, from the district attorney's office. So the DA who I had met, some of the people from his office, um, chiefs of that that unit were there. I mean, this case was massive. Um, all the detectives I had met, um, the the FBI had gotten involved. There was an agent, a local Philadelphia agent, who got involved for specific reasons um, that they were going to use during trial. Uh, the all the other women were there, but they had strategically placed us so we wouldn't talk to each other because as part of the case, they had to say, these women don't know each other. They have the same story, but they don't know each other. Um, and the press was there. I recognized TV reporters. Um, and the the one person who I... I'm thankful for to this day was the court advocate from war, which is women organized against rape. So what she was there to do and that what her job was all the time was to um, meet the victims outside the courtroom and just tell them about the services that war has to offer, um, which is uh, counseling and just a safe place to go. Um, so, you know, I took is, her card. Is, is war national? Wars only in Philadelphia. There okay. are many uh, crisis centers throughout the country and the world. Um, do you war know, was one of the first. Do you know the uh, web address for war? It's yes, it's uh, war w o a r dot org. W o women organized against rape dot okay. org. Yeah, because oh, I was going to say war w a r. That's got to be taken by somebody else. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and they were one of the first ones in the country, crisis centers, um, in the early 70s to open up. And um, uh, Rain is another great one for Rain. anybody out there. They, you can often yes. get free counseling, um, e- even if what happened to you was two decades ago. Yep. It's Rape and Incest National Network, and it's yes. org. Um, and I am part of their Speakers Bureau. You are? I am, yes. That's very so proud. That's so awesome. Yes. It's such a great organization, <laughs> from what I understand. Yeah. Yes, they are. They are amazing. Um, so, yeah. So, I, you know, I, um, I I chatted with her, and I let her tell me what she had to say. But I was, there was so much going on, and I didn't think I was going to need counseling. Like, you know, I got, I was like, okay. And I took her card, and um and then right after she walked away, um, a reporter sat down next to me who I recognized from the news. And um, I think he he introduced himself. And then he said, are you one of the attorneys? Uh, he was, and I said, no. And when I said no, he said, okay, nice to meet you. And he walked away. He knew I was a victim. He knew um, he could have spoken to me, but he wasn't going to. That Do wasn't you think like, he, fe- he felt like it was disrespectful. Yes. To, yeah. And from that moment on, I um, I would tell people I was like I met him outside of court, and he was you know at the at one of the worst 
times, you know, he respected me. Yeah. Because um, he knew that you were in a vulnerable state and you had to wrap your yes. head around yeah. preparing what you were going to say. And he, I mean, and, you know, a lot of people say a lot of bad things. There aren't a lot of, you know, there are a lot of bad reporters out there. But in my, um, starting with him and everyone ever since um, has always been very compassionate and supportive. Um, well, let's give him some, uh, let's give him a high five. What was his name? Or what is his name? <laughs> um, well, he, he's out of Philadelphia and um, his name escapes me right now. I oh, can't that's, remember. that's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he's on the uh, NBC News. Okay. He's actually one of their uh, investigators. Yeah. yeah um, he doesn't usually cover court cases. Um, so, yeah, so it was a very long day. First of all, they delayed, which I was going to learn which I learned early on happens. The defense was going to delay? Everything. Uh, just throughout the whole entire court process, you know, everything always gets delayed. So that was my first, you know, the, we were all there at nine. It got delayed till noon. That's why I ended up get, having to come back two days later to testify because um, it was getting late. Um, they had other women they had, that had to uh, go first. They had flown one or two in that had to testify from other places. A lot of women um, moved out of the area. You know, mm. they weren't originally from the area. And after this, they moved. So they came back to testify. So that was... Um, when, I, when I did come back the next day, or the two days later, um, and I went into the courtroom, I was really nervous. Um... But I do remember, and I think this is really important um, to say, is that I got on the stand um, and the DA asks you the questions because you have to, you know, answer, tell the story because they're building their case. Um, and then the uh, Marcellus had two attorneys. He had one man, one woman. He had like a dream, Philadelphia dream team of attorneys. Um, Fellow astronauts. Yes. <laughs> and for some reason, which it made no sense to me, the female attorney asked me questions. Of course. Well, in my, well, backfired because in my brain, I'm thinking, I have zero, less than zero respect for a woman who's going to defend a rapist. And that's, so what they, you can, that, and that's what they want the jury to think because they want the jury to think, well, how could a woman break her sisterhood? Right. Well, if that guy is is guilty, he's got to be innocent. Right. Which is sickening. It just well, goes, it, and it uh, it did work in the case of the Philadelphia jury, but um, for me personally, I gathered strength from that because then I was like, wait a second. I'm the victim here, and no stupid woman is going to defend a rapist and get away with it if I'm going to sit here and answer her question. So um, I've, I started to feel better. I started to feel more confident and stronger just sitting there answering questions. Um, the judge, a uh, female. Be because of your indignation or just yeah. the natural process? Okay. Yeah, because yeah. of because of my indignation. I did, you know, I, I did feel some support from um, the whole uh, 
the prosecution side that was there was a lot of people there on purpose because they wanted us to know that they were there for us and that would, helped but yeah definitely. would you make uh eye contact with anybody in particular to help help strengthen you as you yeah. were giving your who would you look to well the the prosecutor in my case was joe Kahn. he's he's the most amazing um district attorney ever he uh how do you spell his last name for our transcribers k-h-a-n joe Kahn. so he started out in this unit in philadelphia district attorney's office and he's so good that he he is now uh, a u.s attorney in philadelphia but he was so passionate he said i am not going to the u.s attorney's office unless i can keep this case i'm keeping this case until it's to the end um, so, you know, Joe said, you can stare at me, so-and-so will be behind me and uh, sitting um, in the courtroom. You can look at any of us and, you know, look at us if you need to. Uh, so, yeah, so I was practicing those tactics. Um, yeah, and uh, there was a female judge, and she asked me a few questions. Um, and that was that. And I left and had to go to work because I wasn't even supposed to be taking that time off that day How the fuck you got through these work days (laughs) is beyond... You must be an awesome employee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) So then what happened? Um, I got a call the next day from uh, the DA and he said I did a great job and that the judge found that they were going to, you know, hold my uh, case over for trial and um so that made me very happy um and i guess we can flash forward about a month because then you know the holidays came and january came and all of a sudden i was uh not feeling right in my head it was really starting i guess because i knew that the the year had turned over and that was the year i was gonna have to you know go to a trial and um I had I called I pulled out that card from Kathy at war and I called her um, and I said I'm going to need some help <laughs> um, there's their services are all um, you know free for victims was it hard for you to call or was it like no I'm going to do no this. it wasn't hard I yeah it, I knew I needed to call I don't know I don't I can't describe how I was feeling I just knew I was feeling off um and wrong you know so i knew that i I need to talk to someone because i had previously uh been through counseling so maybe it was easier for me to realize i needed help because i had helped before so i don't know if other people get that same feeling um but that was why i had it and um you know i i met and started regular sessions um, and what's so great about war or rain or any of the other crisis centers that may be local to you wherever you are, um, they specialize and they only treat sexual assault and domestic violence. So uh, that is a whole, whole separate treatment. It really, really is. Um, then, uh, then regular then counseling. Regular counseling. You're, you're. If you've had other types of counseling, those counselors um, have a wide range of clientele. And in cri- rape crisis centers, they only have um, rape and domestic violence um, uh, patients. So um, 
you know, they that's what they do every day. These are the people they treat every single day. And many of them are also survivors, the yes. people helping you. So they know yes. to the core of their being. What, yes, and the other people feeling. Right. The other people working there, the volunteers, the other employees uh, working there may have been um, assaulted at some point. Um, because that's, that's how it leads you to wanting to help others the way I, the, where I am today also. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they know all the tricks your brain will play on you to quote unquote, you know, um, help your, help yourself Mm -hmm. when in reality it's pushing down the thoughts and feelings you don't want to feel. And they know how in a safe environment to allow that stuff to come up in a, in a safe environment. Yeah. And, And talk about for, for you when, when that, when that stuff began to come up this this stuff that you were having trouble with um unless i'm skipping too far ahead did i cut you off no i i I still can't describe it at the the feeling um well that there's the the common you know uh blaming myself um so victim blaming but of myself what how, what could you have possibly blamed yourself for um you know you what the usual what you know i put myself in that situation how um because i went back to his apartment he because that's where he drugged me Oh, the brain. Uh, I was all these other places. Oh, the brain. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, the brain. And it's um, your brain. Why would your brain attack you? It, it turns on you. It does. <laughs> um, and it takes a lot of it takes a lot of therapy for a trained counselor to help your brain. It is its own along court its case. way. I it know. is its own course. It's almost like yeah. it is. It is defending itself against some sick evolutionary thing that must have allowed us to keep going out and hunting and gathering. Yeah. Yeah, there's something, yeah, something old in there that's just not, that's going to stay and um, attack, attack us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I needed to, because I, I hadn't really talked to anyone about it. You know, I had told my mom, my brother, my friend. But I hadn't talked about it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it was it was big, you know, you're I knew the embarrassment of telling that story in open court. I knew I was going to have to do it again. Um, I, I don't know. It's just really hard to describe how I was feeling. It was just it was a lot. Um, I just saw I needed to talk to someone. It's it's gross uh, having to talk a recount out loud having been exposed and used Mm -hmm. it's um yeah there i think the only people i've ever felt recount comfortable recounting that to are people that i know who have experienced something similar exactly and then and then i feel like i then you feel it's a comfort it's safe yeah, it's like when I would walk into the war offices every week. I would all of a sudden my shoulders would go down. I could breathe. Um, you know, they they would they knew my name. Hi, Joanne. When I would walk in, and um, you know, just felt really good. You know what it would feel like when I would recount stuff that happened to me to somebody who I felt like didn't. Um, 
might not be able to understand and might judge me or think I was weird. Um, you know that when you would have that bad dream where you would find yourself in class and you forgot to dress and everybody else had their clothes on and you didn't right. that's what it that's what it would feel like to me when mm-hmm. i had to recount it to somebody who i was afraid was going to judge me right yeah and it didn't feel like that right. when it would be somebody who i know knew wasn't knew wasn't going to judge me it yeah. felt like i had my clothes on that's that's what it is it's um um other victims counselors it's completely judgment free and um so you know you could say it and you don't have to like wait for the reaction because you know when i the few people that i had told early on i would say it and then i'd wait for the reaction oh my gosh you, it, it's awful it's like it, it is like waiting to find out what your biopsy is you know awful looking you're you're looking at the reaction on their face do they think i'm a liar do they think i'm yeah. a baby an exaggerator mm-hmm. what and uh, oh it's it's torture yeah it's torture I chickened out and told my mom on the phone. I totally, when I told her. Now, my brother, um, I didn't tell him until the day after I testified. And I had gone over... Um, Was this the... the preliminary. A different, a different brother? No, just my my one brother. I, he, I, told, I didn't tell him till after I told my mom. Oh, so he, yeah. the trial trial was what you were afraid he was going to come to and, and kill the guy. Right. The, that was the sentencing okay. after the trial. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So I went over to his house and I tell him and he's like, he's like, oh, my God, Joanne, I've been watching the coverage on the news of that. Oh, and he didn't know you were a part of it. No. And then I felt like crap. I felt guilty. You know, um, that's 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 a f- good description of feelings that you have uh especially when you have to you know tell your family or you know um because now you you feel like i'm telling them this awful thing and i feel guilty for now i have to make them feel bad i've I've burdened them i've injected them with negative feelings yeah yeah totally um, and yet, in reality, while while you may see sadness on their face in the beginning or anger or something that's uncomfortable, ultimately, you give that person a chance to have more meaning and purpose in their life because you give them the chance to rally around you and mm-hmm. support you and love you in a way that in day-to-day life, they may not have, right. have been able to rally around you and right. and show their love to you. Yeah. But we don't think about that when right. we want to share you know, I got off the phone with my brother the other day, and we were talking about my mom and, you know, doing our usual bonding over just how unbearable <laughs> she is. And and I and I started to tear up a little bit, and I said, thank you. I just want to thank you for being so supportive of me. Yeah. And, and I love you. Yeah. And we don't say that a lot to each other. Right. Because he's kind of a, doesn't talk about his feelings yeah. much, but he's just been incredibly supportive to me through this whole thing. Yeah. And um, it's so touching. Mm-hmm. It's so, and I could tell that it was good for him too. Right. To, yeah. You know? And, yeah, that and he that, wanted to be a part of it, yeah, right? But I felt yeah. like it was important to to mention that because I know there's people out there that are like, I don't want to burden somebody. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want them to feel bad. Yeah, I don't want to take away from their life. Right. But you can often be giving them a chance to have really meaningful moments in their life. Yeah, and shouldn't and shouldn't you give them the opportunity? Like, mm-hmm. 
as much as uh, you know, you have your feelings of how it's going to burden them or how they're going to react. Um, you should also afford them the opportunity of doing that themselves, being able to support you, mm-hmm. and you know, and by not telling uh, someone that's very close to you, you're not allowing that, so you're shutting them out. And think to yourself: Have you ever have there ever been a, a time in your life when share, somebody shared something painful with you, where you thought, "I wish that person hadn't shared that with me." Never. Right. I can never think of a of, of a certain exactly. time. In fact, I'm always touched that yeah. somebody. That's your way of saying to the person, "I value you." Exactly. I yeah. trust you. Right. And trust is important. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. So glad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what was next? Um, well, I was going through the counseling, and I was um, if right, right before, I guess it was a month before the trial, I guess at that point I was, um, I was trying to find out or figure out how I could prepare myself uh, better because I knew already what it was like once to testify. And um, so I wanted to to know a little bit more. So, I, I, you know, I was asking her uh, things like that and how, how to get ready um, for that. Um, although I never did testify in the trial in Philadelphia um, for strategic purposes. Uh, they dropped my charges. They had an, they had seven women that they knew had a strong case. Um, they were gun shy after losing the first trial and, um, they wanted to make sure that they had enough going forward that they didn't, if they didn't have, if they didn't get the outcome, um, and the uh, convictions in this one that they wanted to have more, they wanted to take him further. Um, so I was going to be part of that plan if it you know, if they didn't get what they needed from this trial and then the one in Idaho, which was at first I was um, I was devastated. But I, you know, in my mind, uh, I'm not a trained attorney. I trusted um, the district attorney and um, I said, whatever you need me to do, I said from day one, whatever is needed of me, I will do um, to get them put away. So, um, you know, there was a little bit getting through that. Um, and I don't, anybody listening that hasn't been able to step forward because you couldn't bring yourself to do it, don't feel any shame. Mm-hmm. It's a personal thing for, for everybody. And some people get extremely, the thought of going and doing that um, is uh, traumatizing, the thought of doing that. And I just want to say that's okay, too. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I've been through it. And, um, and I, I say that frequently, um, that there were a lot of women that even though they came forward, gave their statement, they couldn't go through with the trial process. Um, and I will never, ever judge them for that because it's not for everyone. Um, you have to be all in or, you know, emotionally and mentally you're you're not going to get through it so and i wasn't getting through it without professional counseling so you can imagine people who aren't ready to do it um yeah it's you know it's uh it's very difficult um and the outcome is frequently not what you want Mm -hmm, which can be (laughs) traumatizing i would imagine yeah i mean i followed along um the trial was was long 
it was days and days long, so I followed along uh, online. <laughs> that was the only good thing about it being high profile. Um, and then they deliberated for five days. It was horrible. It was horrible because you're like, what are they talking about? How could they not? <laughs> Seven women. It was so bad. Um, and then the the verdicts came in. Um, it wasn't in wasn't what I wanted, but um, you know, I I called the district attorney. We spoke, and he said that because he was convicted for two counts of sexual assault, he would be classified as a sex offender. He would get up to twenty years in prison. That for them, it really was a victory because he knows what it's like to take these things to trial. Um, it just so happened I had had a counseling appointment scheduled for that night, and thank God because I was able to work through everything that I was feeling. Um, I can't tell you how much I, because I sat through the closing arguments. I got to look at the jury. I got to see their faces. And um, so I had a faces to put to my hatred after the, the verdict came in. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it was what it was. And the verdict was 20 years? It Well, the sentencing, yeah, he got two counts of... I mean, of, the yeah, sentencing was He got um, two counts of sexual assault. There were 37 charges total, in total. And only and, two. And only two. Two women. Was it lack of physical evidence? Because so um, many... I guess it was... The, there were reports of the uh, jury yelling at each other. There was just... They just couldn't... They just couldn't decide what to do it wasn't you know they i don't think they were qualified to uh (laughs) and he was sentenced to how long he was sentenced to uh 21 years in prison and classified as a sex offender so when he would get out um we all know what the sex offender status is there's Mm -hmm. a list and blah 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 that wasn't enough he was um we knew that whenever he got out, he was going to do it again. He was smug. Um, I got to look him in the face many times in the courtroom. Um, he was flirting with his female attorney, and she was falling for it. It was like he was never, ever going to change. Um, wow. It was awful. I mean, we the, the women, we were all sitting with each other, and we're like, what is going on up there? at his defense table it was awful it was disgusting but you know that's what it was (laughs) um so yeah so then um i at that point after the sentencing i had started a new job which uh entailed a lot of travel i was a flight attendant on private jets so i pretty much was getting away as far away as you could. <laughs> I was flying a lot. Um, so I stopped counseling um, and I was trying to move on. I knew there was the trial in Idaho that was coming, but we didn't know when because that kept getting changed, you know, that kept getting moved. I love that you <laughs> you got away from smug, privileged white guys by being a deflated attendant on private jets. <laughs> Did you did you encounter any situations that were triggering where where you felt like you were being objectified or kind of um No, not at all. I mean, I had the best experience. I flew um very wealthy 
uh, businessmen, uh, musicians, you know, uh, celebrities. Um, I flew A-list everything, and they were the nicest people on the planet, and I never was ever objectified. I was treated with the utmost respect. Um, I think... Um, you know, when they walk onto a plane that they're spending a lot of money on and they know that there's no cameras and that they don't have, um, they know that they're safe there. Um, and you know, it was, it was a very good experience. Clearly it was more than just white guys, but I just felt like I had to make, but it's, but yeah, it was a lot of everybody. Yeah. Um, well, I, <laughs> there's an interesting thing that goes on on private planes, meaning you, you have the high likeliness of getting tips and very large tips. So, um, so that was fun. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was, it was good. And, you know, it, it got me away um, from not here because I was from New Jersey. Um, and it got me away. From and it was around the time that I needed to get away um, from the area, so that was good and it was it was good timing. Um, and then once the trial in Idaho was scheduled, um, then I called Laura again, my counselor, and I said, you know what, I I need I'm not done with counseling and I need to you know talk to you some. More. And you were not doing war anymore. Um, she's at war. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, 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 I called I, her back. Okay. Um, so she said, okay. And we started, you know, count, started up counseling again. Um, so, so that was more, you know, more regular counseling. Um, again, I guess because this, the trial that was coming up was, it, it almost seemed like everything was, um, um, hinging on it. Um, we wanted, we were hoping for a rape conviction because that entailed life in prison. Um, and so I think I felt even more anxious. So at he, that had al- point. he'd already been sentenced in one he state to been, 20 years and this one was, yeah, to, this okay. was going to be, yeah. So he was gonna, um, so yeah, they, um, they put him on, uh, con air bus and drove him out to idaho it takes weeks they take the prisoners all over the country it's hilarious you know they're on like wasn't it a dc 10 with steve buscemi no (laughs) (laughs) um so uh yeah so i was feeling anxious again and um and i needed to you know needed her counseling um to prepare for this trial um but you wouldn't be you would or would not be testifying i would not be testifying although after the um rape conviction they reached out to the women in the philadelphia trial including myself and said we would be able to to write a victim's impact statement which was the most amazing thing i've ever done so um through all the counseling i had and everything that we had done we had done talk and written therapy um so i wrote it out and uh, we went through it one of our sessions and i emailed it off and um i got to be part of his being sentenced to life in prison he will never see the light of day uh if i get to i will dance on his grave and i and i and that makes me smile he will never hurt another woman again um it's a good thing 
give me give me some epiphanies, if any, that happened in counseling um, that you can verbalize. Um, or turning points. I don't. I'll ha- I have to think about that. I or, or was I know it just, that was it just letting out grief and sadness and anger? Yeah, and she just had. It was the way she navigated me through everything. Um, she had the most soothing voice on the planet. And she was the littlest thing. She was like five feet tall and nothing. And just, just, she was just the most, most, um, supportive, soothing person. She had, many advanced degrees from really good schools on the East Coast, and she was smart. Was she an astronaut? No, she was not. <laughs> she was doing better things for me. Um, but I, I don't, I, I didn't really have uh, epiphanies, I think because it, it was such a slow process, um, because I saw her through two different years, um, that it, that it was that type of counseling. It was never anything um, that would hit me, and I would be like, "Whoa!" It was just like every li- every week, I moved further and further into mental health. I'm glad you said that because I forget sometimes that that I often want to stop being in counseling because I don't have epiphanies, and mm-hmm. I think I'm an epiphany junkie. <laughs> And uh, I heard a friend of mine say that about himself once, and I was like, yeah, I think I am too. I think it's the addict in me that wants it all. I want to take a gigantic bite out of therapy and go, yeah, I'm moving forward. And when I don't get those, I feel like I'm wasting my time sometimes or like I'm I'm ready to leave. It's really a slow process. It's almost as slow as the court process in this country is (laughs) mental health. It's And you have to... And I didn't realize it until it was it was all over. But um, but yeah, it was just she was slowly moving me through everything. Um, I didn't I didn't even know she was doing it. <laughs> um, good therapist. And, I just I just I know. want to high five all the therapists and social workers out there and just and, I think great and the volunteers <laughs> at the at the shelters and the yeah awesome people in support groups. You're. You're fucking lifesavers. I know. Literally. Yeah. Literally. They have, I'm sure they know what they're doing, but they have no idea that on the grand scale. Yeah. They don't hear it enough. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And she, uh, she did end up moving on from war, um, you know, and I, I kept in touch once or twice. Um, But yeah, she was, and she, she knew, um, it it the timing of the of his rape conviction and the timing of the war take back the night event was the same weekend and just prior to that she had asked if i would she knew i was i guess coming towards the end of my counseling process she knew it i you know i didn't but um she asked if i would be a speaker they have you know every year they have uh, victims that speak even though i was still pretty raw i guess she felt um that it would be good for me and that it would be good for others that were would be sitting there in the audience um so I wrote my first uh, speech, and um, she, I, 
I literally, if I was not holding onto her hand, I was touching her arm to arm. She was that close to me in order for me to get through it. I was an emotional basket case. I would, because I was telling my whole story for the first time to, even though it was a group of people that was supportive, um, other victims, the counselors, and. I probably um, made it more emotional. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It did. It really did. Um, and the, the, um, and when I walked in, that Saturday, I had just gotten uh, the call from the district attorney the night before about the conviction. So I was already raw. And, um, you know, I, I walked in and I saw the people from Warren and Laura and I walked in with this big smile and I'm like, he got convicted for rape. They, you know, I was so excited. Um, and so that was like, I guess that made it you know, 10 times more emotional uh, for me. So it was like the I, justice system was in there holding your hand too. Everyone was, yeah. Um, so I gave my speech and um, I knew right then that I wanted to keep talking, keep talking about it. And, um, and you know, as time went on, I knew that I was going to want to help others because um all the all those people that were there to help me they were strangers they didn't know me they didn't have to you know they didn't have to be passionate about this case they didn't have to be there for me um but they were and um you know that i had to pay it forward so that's you know why i wanted to continue to speak and you know i i started small i started emailing my the college that i went to um in new jersey and and then it kind of it kind of snowballed from there <laughs> give me a snapshot of a moment when you finish speaking and a rape victim comes up to you or somebody that isn't sure whether or not they're mm -hmm. a rape victim because i think those are the ones that are the most touching to me yeah are those where you're like oh no what happened to you qualifies yes in my opinion yes you know? um i have spoken for the last i think five or six semesters at penn um to their victimology class and um i take questions while i'm up there and then as class is adjourning i stand there um, with the professor and so kids can come up to me if you know and I have I have had several um, I see it in their faces I tell them just to go to start talk to talk to someone first anyone um, to call the counseling center so many colleges now have these wonderful counseling centers um, and it makes me want to cry I'm I'm almost moved to tears many times because um, I've got a victim standing right in front of me at the beginning where I had stood and it just hurts. It hurts me because there's so many. So many. So <laughs> and many. And it's just, it's just, it, and then it, um, it makes me angry again that um, why? Why are there so many victims? Why are there so many bad men? There are so many good men, <laughs> um, but and there would, are so many bad ones. And I would add, too, that there are a lot of female um, perpetrators. Yes. Um, the majority we should are talk men. about that. Yeah. Uh, we should talk that there are 
many men out there. There are there are a lot of uh, male support groups, at least that I know from Twitter, um, all over the country. Um, they're they're there for the men who um, have been assaulted and that need help. Um, so and they're and they're not uncommon. No, and their recovery can can often have pitfalls in it that women don't, you know, because the erection yeah. and society's views on it and particularly you know if their perpetrator was a hot woman in their 20s and yeah. they were 14 or yeah. what, whatever you know yep. um there's a lot of a lot of um hurdles for them to to have compassion for themselves um do you when you get that person in line um cuz i've experienced that when i've when i've spoken mm-hmm. about it and i've shared and i get that person in line with tears in their eyes and and we hug mm-hmm. you know i usually ask him is it okay if i give you a hug I know, because i, I want to yeah. um <laughs> it's the greatest feeling in the world mm-hmm. it's what does it feel like for for you when when you hug that person and you can see that something is cracking open in them that's going to maybe start them to heal exactly that it's that um they trusted me enough to say i don't know if it was but um and that's really common so that's that's such a common phrase with um uh rape or assault victims i don't know if it was but this is what happened um if you think it was it was it means you didn't consent um it means you couldn't consent um so it it should never be a question you know when you've consented to sex and the fact that you're standing in line with tears in your eyes there's zero percent chance that something wasn't taken from you right zero percent chance exactly yeah exactly that so um uh, it's just it's a, that question just that hurts me that um you know that the question even has to be there but that's where i started mm-hmm. you know i questioned myself anything else that you you would like to to add before we uh i'd like to go out i know i asked you to do loves and fears mm-hmm. um and and some surveys that you related to. Let's let's do a survey that you uh, related to. Um, yeah. Which survey is this? I let's see. That's good. We sort of talked about some other notes that I had put down that mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about. So that's good. Um, there was one or two. I just had. There was three here. Mm-hmm. Um, And you don't have to read the entire thing if there's just yeah. an excerpt from it that, that struck you. Uh, tell us what the name of the survey is, who the person is, how old they are. There was uh, someone named Lucky Lou, and she said that she was and she never reported, um, that she was pretty sure she got the date rape drug put in her drink uh, she was with a group of people she didn't know, and she blacked out and couldn't remember anything, um, that she didn't know how she got into the bed. And this is very, very close to my story. She woke up naked. Um, someone took her clothes off, 
and she had fragmented memory of having sex, uh, but didn't know who it was in this case because she was with a group of people. Um, I try not to think about it, she says, but it was extremely disturbing at the time, and I had a lot of shame about even being there, like I should have known better than to hang out with those people. Um, so, you know, you, you shouldn't have to um, know better to hang out with people that you don't really know too well, because the, we frequently hang out with people we don't know too well, because we want to get to know people, we want to mm-hmm. get to make new friends. Um, so that that's there's nothing wrong with that um i get i i think i can say that um i get asked frequently uh about online dating and if it's you know okay and safe and things like that and or going out and having drinks on a date yes all of that is okay all of these things are okay to go out with people that you uh, you don't know that well um having drinks on a date meeting someone online um all those things are okay because if if you stop doing all those things you're not living and you just have to what i always say is trust your instincts um and just be, you know, just be aware because your instincts will always, always be right. Um, do you, you know, watch your drink. It's simple, but watch your drink. Uh, if you go to the bathroom, take it with you or get a new one when you go back to the bar. Um, you know, just um, stay out in public groups if you're on a new date but but yeah it's it's really important to say that um none of that none of those things that you did if you were a victim were your fault no even if you failed to do all the things that you just mentioned to take precautions right that's that doesn't give anybody the 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 right and i know this sounds obvious but you got to understand the person that this happens to is looking to blame themselves first so they can avoid feeling the absolute terror and pain that I live in a world where somebody could be this cruel to me. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yes. I looked into the eyes of a monster, but but he portrayed himself as a nice guy. And um, so... I had there's no way of knowing and controlling that situation so he'd been honing his craft probably since he was a very long time yeah yeah um unfortunately they believe to be over a hundred victims of his yeah um so you know the and a lot of a lot of times this doesn't make it right or wrong or anything but Guys that do this, don't do it once, okay? If someone drugged your drink um, and raped you, it's they did it before. They just, they've never been caught. Um, you know, just take care of yourself is what you have to do. It, it happened, but now you need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You need to tell someone you, you need and- to, yeah. 
And that you have control over. Yes. Yes. That's where you you gain the control back and that's where you start to heal yeah. because that's, that's where we want all the victims to be at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're, we're running out of time, so we're going we're gonna to wrap up, but I think that's a great, um, a great thing to end on. Um, Joanne, thank you so much for uh, articulating so well what must have been um, a really, really confusing and intense process to to go through and i also want to high five you on uh going and speaking i i I just the world needs needs more of that needs more people that um say hey no shame my it is not my shame to carry thank you yes and you know i um i'm gonna speak out and speak wherever i have to and um if i can help one person in each place or every time someone hears me, then, you know, that's what's important to me. And it gets easier to talk about it the more you talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing I'd like to say. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Many, many thanks to uh, Joanne. I hope you got as much out of that uh, episode as as I did. It's amazing the things that I get to, to learn and experience uh, doing this podcast. It's... Um, you know, one one of the things I'm so grateful for, you know, I've shared with you the, the struggles I've had with with my depression and addictions and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but through it all, I never um I never feel like I can't I can't do this show. Um, at least so far. I, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope that it doesn't, it, it, it never gets to that point. But, you know, I've certainly had weeks where it's felt like more, uh, where, where there's been an element of effort to it. But, um, it's just so nice to have, to have this outlet and to have it embraced by you guys and not just embraced, but embraced, um, with such passion and kindness and, and love. Um, it's I'm forever grateful I don't have that many surveys for this uh, episode Um, and I don't know why I needed to qualify that because I'm afraid of being abandoned by you that's why that's what it all almost everything I do probably comes from some type of fear of rejection or abandonment this is from the shame and secret survey and this oh I almost forgot If you guys want to support the show, go to the website. There's all kinds of stuff. You can support us financially by making a one-time PayPal donation or uh, a recurring monthly donation, which is super simple to set up. And you can do it for as little as five bucks a month. makes a huge difference. helps keep the show going. There's more stuff, but I don't feel like doing it. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this was filled out by um, a... Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention, I am tentatively planning, I am on coming uh, out to uh, New York City uh, sometime in the fall to maybe do a live episode of the podcast and um, hopefully to do other people's podcasts as well and uh, maybe record some people. So um, I'm probably going to wind up doing it someplace in Brooklyn as I get closer and have a date. Um, I'll, I'll keep you apprised of that. Okay, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Heavy Dirty Soul. 
I'm a fan right out of the gate. She's straight. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, uh, she writes, I'm not sure if it counts because I do it to myself. Uh, I wasn't sure how slash where to get this out. I have a lot of inappropriate chats with men online. I've done it since I was 14, and the older they are, the better. I send them things you'd never really show or say to anyone. The thing is, the creepier the guy is, the more my brain yells, go for it. I shake the whole time and feel sick to my stomach. I really don't want to do this. It helps me feel numb. That sounds to me like textbook sex addiction. Um, and I'm sure there's got to be some trauma uh, going on uh, underneath there. If not sexual trauma, some type of uh, emotional pain that makes the feeling of numb a, a rational choice. Uh, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, I was always told that it was just, quote, typical sibling behavior, but looking at the scars on my back, I'm not so sure. Wow. Any positive experience with your abusers? I mean, she's my sister. I love her. She's such a nice person sometimes. Uh, she's such a nice person sometimes I think I made everything up. Darkest thoughts? I think about killing people a lot. I'm not a violent person. Darkest secrets? I'm destroying myself and I honestly don't care. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be used. I don't want to be treated like a person. It feels scary to admit this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to ask for help, and I'm not sure how to anymore. It's very simple. Google uh, Lofi Therapy and the name of your town or city and just uh, start l looking at places until you find one that sounds good. Call it and say, I need help, I need to talk to somebody, um, and make an appointment, and uh, find somebody that you click with, and then start sharing this stuff with them, and it will get better. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could just restart this life. Well, you can. You can. I mean, we can't, obviously, undo the stuff that's been done to us, but we can redo how we feel about it, and and how we go through the world. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't. I was never taught to express thoughts or feelings as a child, and I guess it's stuck. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel weird, shaky, and almost relieved. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? She writes, you're not alone. And amen to that. You are not. A lot of that stuff that you are experiencing is not unique to you. Um, it is... It is a thing, and it has a name, and it is, you You are reacting, you are having a normal human reaction to an unhealthy emotional environment. You are not a bad person. This is an awful moment filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself Four. She writes, when I was 15 years old, uh, my mother and I were having one of our usual knockdown, drag-out fights, except this time I changed things up. 
This time, I decided I wasn't going to be the one that got knocked down. My mother, who weighed in excess of 300 pounds at the time, had tried to sit on me and I kicked her off, but I just wasn't done getting my anger over the years of being beaten black and blue by her. After kicking her off of me to the ground, I ran out to the garage, fuming over the years of abuse. I went over to my half-brother's set of golf clubs sitting in the corner of the garage. I carefully touched and surveyed each club in front of me reading the numbers imprinted on each one. Hold on one second. Uh, the, the numbers printed on each one. Um, there were numbers and it seemed reasonable to choose the metal club with the highest number I could find. Sliding the nine iron from the club bag, I gave it a cheerful toss into the air and caught it. With a literal spring in my step, I walked around the front uh, of my mother's Jaguar Vandenplasse a sedan and waited for my mother to come to the garage door once she was in place and the club gripped firmly in my hand i raised the club up over my head bringing the club down under the windshield and my mother's one true love over and over i whacked the shit out of the windshield watching tiny shards of glass come up with each blow and screaming i told you to stop hitting me what don't you understand my mother stood there sobbing it felt so good to see her hurt as much as I had hurt. It only encouraged my anger to continue to flow. Asymmetry bugs me, so I felt compelled to walk around to the passenger side of the car and do a nice, even job. Just a few whacks in, my dad appeared out of nowhere and grabbed me in a big bear hug. As he dragged me into the car with him, he yelled to my mom, God damn it, how many times have I told you to stop hitting her? You brought this on yourself by hitting her. My dad drove me up to my brother's office to have lunch with him. Sitting in the restaurant with my brother, eating my french fries numbly, numbly, uh, my dad stepped away from the table to wash his hands. My brother leaned over and whispered, so which club did you use? I used your nine iron. My brother pumped his fist and said, yes. I was worried you'd used one of my woods. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Andy. And he writes, A therapist asked me to reflect on a dark memory of being 14 and bullied by what I thought were good friends in front of a girl I was attracted to. After reflecting on the many shameful memories, thoughts, and emotions attached to this incident, the therapist asked me to try to reflect on something that happened to me when I was, something happy that happened to me when I was that age. At first, I couldn't think of anything and nearly gave up in the session. But suddenly, a happy memory of my freshman French teacher appeared. Out of the blue one night, he called my mother to tell her that he was concerned about my well-being. He was worried and felt my behavior has changed and I wasn't acting as enthused about things. While reflecting on this memory in my therapy, I burst into tears, which I hadn't done in years. A warm sensation of joy overtook me as I was reminded of the kindness of this teacher to go out of his way to make sure I was okay and in a sense that I mattered. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Andy. This is a struggle in a sentence. This was filled out by a girl who calls herself, uh, I say girl because she lists her age between 10 and 15 years old, um, 
she calls herself Snow, and uh, she is gay. About her alcoholism and drug addiction, she writes, When I mix my anxiety meds with my dad's vodka, I can practically touch the northern lights. I'm so high and free, but when I come down, I'll be lower than the ocean floor. About being a sex crime victim, she writes, Whenever I see myself in the mirror, I see the nine-year-old me trying to clean myself up in the bathroom afterwards. That is... That is... Again, one of those moments that just leave you leave you speechless. Snapshot from her life. I'm breaking all the mirrors in the bathroom and I don't know why. A minute ago I was fine, but my eyes looked all wrong and I could see my rapist's face. I'm so angry, I'm screaming, and my fists are all bloody and I've dropped the rock I was using to break the mirror. I can't stop crying, but then like a switch, I'm trapped far away watching the body that might be mine and the people talking to it, an entire moon's length away, stuck in orbit, and I don't come back to myself until later when I find myself on a couch with bandaged hands in the living room watching TV. Sending you a big heaping bucket of love. I hope you're talking to somebody. I hope you're you're not trying to process all this stuff on your own. Well, the fact that you have anxiety meds probably means that you're uh, you're seeing somebody, but this is a happy moment, and this was filled up by Andrea, and she, I remember this one now. She writes, I doubt you will read this on a podcast because you are so modest, but I have a happy moment every time you read a shocking or startling listener survey without an ounce of judgment in your voice. Yes, I want to read that because um, that made me happy. And I told the, vo- the the voice in my head that said, you're going to look like a, uh, I don't know what the word would be, a pompous uh, jackass. And I decided to read it. So you had me pegged wrong. So go fuck yourself. How do you like that? You're nice to me. I switch it around. I take you down. It'll, it'll teach you. To support me in the show. This is a uh, struggle in a sentence. This is filled up by a guy who calls himself teacher collegist. He is uh, gay and he's in his 30s. About being a sex crime victim, he writes, I wonder what every man looks like when he comes. Uh, snapshot from his life. I regret not reporting sexual abuse that happened to me before the statute of limitations passed. I was 13. He was 25. There was penetration. It was, quote, consensual to the degree that I did not feel threatened. I was coerced, though. It was statutory rape. I don't think I was his first, and I don't think I was his last. Not sure what to do. I want him to pay. Jail time, restitution, civil suits for what he has done to me and presumably many others. Well, you know, after talking to Joanne, um, you know, the one thing I took out of that is, is... to focus on what you have control over, which is your healing. And uh, I I hope you're, you're going and talking to someone. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Moonlight. And uh, her struggle, she writes, approaching the first anniversary of my husband's suicide is like the inverse of waiting for Christmas as a kid. I can't imagine how hard that's got to be. Sending you some love. 
And if you haven't listened to the episode with uh, Lisa Richards, um, I don't know if it would be triggering or be comforting, but um, that tackles that that issue, although it was her daughter, not, uh, not her spouse. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself can't think of anything clever. And she writes, I'm a single working mom with ADHD who has a six-year-old daughter with ADHD. Lately, we've been having a lot of behavior issues, uh, meltdowns, attitude, boundary issues, sometimes violent outbursts. We've both been guilty of this one. And the emotional toll of all of this on me has been overwhelming. We started counseling for my daughter in May, and things have been getting gradually better. We got her official ADHD diagnosis and have been working to build systems to make our lives run better. A new part of our nightly routine is that I'm supposed to write down or just remember various good things I see my daughter doing throughout the day and then put them in her good choices box. I've been struggling to remember to write them down, but we've been doing it consistently for a week or two, and I can see the results already. Anyway, last night, I actually remembered to write down the good things and put them in the box. And then I had the great idea to call her dad for her to say goodnight and let him hear all the good things too. We got into her bed for our nightly cuddles and got on the phone with him. First, she was actually uh, first she was actually animated on the phone with him, which has been rare lately. And then I went through and read all the good things I had written down. We talked more about some of them, and I could just feel her energy become brighter and her body more relaxed. I was also so proud because I had realized she's had more than a week of consistently good scores on the bedtime routine, and we've had mostly good mornings in the same time. Her overall demeanor has been so much better, even on things she's upset about, where my saying no to something would have once turned into arguing until we are both screaming at each other. She has instead responded respectfully. She may challenge and ask why or try one more time, but if I say no, she accepts it and my explanation. This is a huge breakthrough. So many of our fights start this way, but now she's learning how to communicate her thoughts and feelings. I'm giving her much more positive feedback and showing how much I appreciate the little things she does instead of just pointing out what she's not doing. We are so much closer the last few weeks because of these little changes. Who knows if it will last since the only consistent thing about ADHD is our inconsistency, but this feels great. After feeling like I'm constantly failing or skating by with the bare minimum for months, I feel like maybe some things can get better and I can raise her to be better than me. As we sat on the phone and talked about everything that's been going well and telling her dad about the stuff we learned in her latest counseling session, I felt like I was able to show her the love I always feel and not be clouded by my constant depression, anxiety, anger, irritability, inattention, etc. I felt like I got a short glimpse of what it is like for a neuronormal parent, and I felt worthy of the love that she keeps on me when she isn't telling me she hates me. She's telling me I'm her favorite person ever. That is so beautiful. God, I love, I just love reading from parents, reading stuff written by parents that are um, getting through to their kids and, and connecting emotionally. I, I don't think there's anything more important in this world. This is uh, Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself a uh, generic nickname. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. 
he writes, oversharing by both parents, not respecting boundaries, too much sexual behavior in front of us, uh, in front of us children, especially by my father, not towards us, towards my mom and also other women. After my parents' divorce when I was 11, my mom started what I today would call a pattern bordering on sexual transgression against me, not against my younger brother, which is apparently typical for narcissistic personality disorder, which I've diagnosed her with, and I'm 100% confident in that diagnosis. She'd, quote, accidentally walk in on me while I was in the bathroom, making remarks about me in the third person. Oh, look, he's growing pubic hair. He's becoming a man now. She also, quote, accidentally walked into my room while I was having sex. That happened at least once with every girlfriend I had while I was still living there. She usually claimed that she had knocked but received no answer. Interesting, because sex doesn't make me deaf, and she never, ever walked into my room when I was not having sex. Ever been emotionally abused? Uh, yes. My mom used me as her free therapist in emotional trash can. Just as an example, when I was 12, shortly after the divorce, I was tasked by my mom to disassemble the marital bed. We didn't have proper tools, though. All we had was one of those double-ended screwdrivers with a detachable grip, which you could alternate between slot and Phillips. But the grip had gone missing, so I used the screwdriver rod with a wrench to turn it. When I rammed the slot end through the skin between my thumb and index finger, she told me, you're doing that intentionally. You just don't want to work, just like your father. That was the general tone of things. She'd set me up to fail and then tell me that I was just like my dad, whom she, of course, called the worst person in the world. The fact that my father actually is a perverted asshole in his own right doesn't make that much better or easier to deal with. I remember the one time I asked her to quit smoking. Today, I'd call uh, what I was experiencing then my first anxiety attack, which I guess must have been pretty normal for kids after a divorce. Needless to say, she told me that I was, quote, just trying to manipulate her, just like your father. During that time, when I was 11 to 13, she also used to always cry and shout in her room, which was adjacent to the room my brother and me slept in. So I had to console my crying brother while suffering myself from terrible anxiety. Today, everyone in the family wonders why I somehow weirdly, magically struggle to get my life together. To all of them, including my brother, by the way, I'm just lazy and don't, quote, take life seriously. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Not with my father. After the divorce, I had no contact with him until I was 20, and he sued me because he didn't want to pay for college. Oh, my God. Then sometime after that, I had a period of a couple of years where I had on-again, off-again contact with him. But mostly, I was just trying to get away from my mom, who instantly suspected me of, quote, making plans with my dad to rob her. My mom can be smart, and talking to her can be interesting, but her uh, narcissistic personality disorder makes it never quite worthwhile, and I will eventually have to become financially independent and cut off all contact with her. Darkest thoughts. I'm not ashamed of any of my thoughts. Put another way, sometimes while masturbating, I'll imagine myself as a girl seducing male friends of mine, but I've told that to a crowd of 200 hecklers on open mic night. What a bunch of humorless cunts. Darkest secrets. I'm a panty sniffer. Whenever I can get my hands on an attractive girl's worn panties, I'll go for it. I've smelled my ex-girlfriend's sister's worn panties while I was at her family's house and came buckets. The sister was 12 at the time. I regret nothing. Well, I hope nobody ever catches you because that could be traumatizing for um, a minor to 
catch you doing that. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I wrote above. Uh, being an idealized female version of myself, seducing my male friends. I'm sure I'm I'm straight BTW. I don't feel attracted to men in general. I think in those fantasies, my friends are a stand-in for myself, which speaks volumes about my true level of self-esteem, i.e. pretty low, because as the fantasy girl, I act in exactly the way I would hope a girl would be in bed with me. As I wrote above, I have shared that before. made me feel like most people don't realize that life is too short to be an inhibited idiot. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? It's not that I haven't said it, but somehow I've always attracted people who ignore when I tell them no. I always say no when I feel like saying it, but so far all the people I've had any kind of relationship with are a bit like my boundary disrespecting parents who regularly flat out ignore my no. What if anything do you wish for? I don't know. I wish I knew. There's an expression in German, Wunschloss Glück. Glücklich, which literally translate translate to wishless happy uh, or perfectly happy. I've always felt wishless unhappy. Um, have you shared? Them? By the way, I had two years of German in college. That's how. That is how bad my fucking. I remember happy birthday was Herzlichen. Uh, oh, I'm not even gonna try. Herzlichen Glückwunsch. Herzlichen Glückwunsch. I think that was it. Anyway, uh, have you shared these things with others? I don't know if I have shared them with others. God knows I've told many people as best I could, but I'm afraid nobody understands. Everybody calls me, quote, complicated, which I, honest to God, do not actually believe I am. Deep down, I'm a very simple person. Other people make it complicated with their shit. How do you feel after writing these things down? Just like before, wishless, unhappy. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't care if anyone shares my thoughts. If someone does, I'd like to tell them to fuck off. This planet is too small for both of us. This is mein Kampf, not yours. Um, you know, can I, can I, first of all, um, I, I hope, I hope you give weight to the stuff that happened, uh, to you, it sounds like you you have, and that you know you might have to con- contact with your your parents, um, and uh, you know the other thing that I wanted to to say, and I've been wanting to say this for a while. This is completely unrelated to your survey, other than you making German references. Is it is high time we recognized. Germany for all the great things that they have done and the amazing contributions to science and culture. Um, Look at the list of classical composers. Bach, just Bach's work alone. Everybody, you know, there is almost no musical idea that somebody can come up with that wasn't done by Bach. On top of that, you got Beethoven. Throw in Brahms, Schumann, Wagner, Strauss. Think of the philosophers, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Kant. They invented beer, the engineering, the the inventions. And then the, the ultimate, to me, 
as somebody who loves design and architecture and uh, furniture, the Bauhaus. If you guys have never investigated what, and I don't mean the band Bauhaus, I'm talking about the design school um, in the early part of the 20th century, it there is almost nothing in our modern life that can't be traced back to the design breakthroughs, the manufacturing breakthroughs that that were done uh, at the Bauhaus. Uh, the shape of uh, silverware, the shape of a toaster, uh, ways of manufacturing things so that um, beauty, simplicity, and practicality could be made on such a scale that it would be affordable for middle class or lower class people. Uh, this was all, and many of these people uh, fled Germany in the 30s and went on to be uh, incredibly influential uh, architects and and designers in the United States and, and, and other countries. But um, I just think... Uh, and I'm guilty of it myself, you know, uh, making the, you know, the Nazi joke or, you know, the, the, the easy joke about it. But it's, it, Germany is, is, is a, is a cultural fucking powerhouse and they deserve, they deserve, um, to be, uh, recognized. And who better to do it than a fucking jackass podcaster? Oh, let's end with this one. This, this awful moment, I read this one today and I felt like Christmas arrived. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself <laughs> Bird on a Casket. And she writes, the moment when they handed me the dove at my grandmother's funeral, the talon, talon from the bird was digging into my finger. As it was digging in and starting to puncture my finger, the chaplain kept talking in a slow, melodic cadence. At the point where I thought I just couldn't take it anymore, the damn bird started to fidget and peck at my hand to try to get his talon free. The bird and I were on the same page, and yet the chaplain just kept talking. Seeing my distress, my cousin, my cousin, who was also holding a dove, finally yelled, Amen. My sister and cousins all threw the birds in the air, and while they were supposed to fly in a circle around the canopy, the bird I was holding was stuck in my hand, and I kind of had to, quote, fling it just to get it unstuck. So all the other birds were flying around. Mine was flailing on top of the casket. Ah, oh, that is fantastic. That, or as my German friends would say, fantastischer. That I know I'm pronouncing correctly. Well, thank you guys for your surveys. Thank you for your support. Oh, and the other thing I want to say, this made me a fan of Germany just on its own. And I hope you're listening, Anne. Our listener, Anne, wrote this thing one time about her... Um, about being an atheist doesn't mean that that you don't believe in some some type of uh, beautiful order in uh, the universe um i obviously can't <laughs> i can't do it justice to try to paraphrase it but 
English isn't even her primary language, and it was the most eloquent thing I had I had uh, ever read. I wish I had it right now so I could read it, but it's on the website somewhere. Go fuck yourselves. We're done. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just remember you're not alone. There's always hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. And um, it's not as hard as you think it is. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.